into a culture of innovation. We interview exceptional leaders who embrace and demonstrate innovation. Hear their stories and listen as we explore turning ideas into tangible ways to create value and cultivate innovation as a way of life. Listen and be inspired as an innovative leader. Together, we shape culture and change the world. Culture of Innovation is brought to you by Ridge Innovative, where we practice innovation with a purpose to help companies use technology and breakthrough strategies to achieve business outcomes. And I'm your host, Nancy Ridge. And today, I'm especially thrilled to announce our special guest, Bob Moore. Bob is the co-founder and CEO of Crossbeam, an ecosystem-led growth platform that helps companies use their partner ecosystems to generate leads, close deals, and grow faster. More previously- Hey, Nancy. Hey, welcome. Great to be here. Welcome. Yeah, I'm just sneaking in on, uh, you know, interrupting my bio with a little hello. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Because, you know, sometimes, I mean, your bio, uh, it's, I learned some things about you. Oh great! This is uh, I'm already I'm already scared about what the next hour involves. Uh, <laughs> this will be, be wonderful. <laughs> well, you know, before we we get into uh, some of the the real credible aspect of it, I have to just say that the outside of work, the improv comedy performer, that was a new take. I was excited to learn that. I said, oh, maybe Bob will not only educate us but make us laugh today. Yeah, if you need to have me pretend that I'm a uh, you know manager of a Walmart in a uh, you know in an HR meeting uh, with a lot of hijinks ensuing, uh, count me in. This is your podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, okay. We'll we'll add that to our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want people to know a little bit about you because uh, I didn't know many of these things. Well, first of all, if you read. The new book, which, by the way, I'm going to go out of order here with how I was going to run this today. So that's cool. I, I really am excited because we get to essentially kind of premiere your new book that's coming out in September, right? Yeah. So we, um, it'll actually be out early next year. We've got a um, uh, kind of a manuscript due date in September. So we've been piloting early copies with a few thought leaders like yourself to make sure that we we really get it right. But uh, yeah, we've signed a, a book deal with Wiley, should be on bookshelves nationwide, and we'll probably do a whole uh, a whole launch tour early next year when it comes out. But um, yeah, at the moment, uh, we've been getting into a lot of great discussions uh, about the content and how it's coming together and, and kind of the spirit of, of, you know, what we're trying to accomplish with the book and, and yeah, happy to, to dig into that today. Yes, very much so. And it is called, uh, titled ecosystem led growth and, you know, uh, your background going back to the bio for a second, there is, a, a, some great stories, but, uh, previously you co-founded the cloud data pipeline company stitch which was acquired by Talent in 2018 and business intelligence platform RJ Metrics acquired by Adobe by way of Magento Commerce in 2016. Prior to RJ Metrics, Moore worked on the investment team of Insight Partners, a leading software-focused venture capital and private equity firm based in New York, and a graduate of Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. And uh, of course, for those of you who don't know, um, Bob is a proud Philadelphian where he serves as a trustee of the Franklin Institute, which is one of the oldest and premier centers of science education and development in the country. 
and has also previously served as the board chair of Philly Startup Leaders and a board member of the Philadelphia Alliance for Capital and Technologies. And as a writer and a speaker, Bob has been featured by the New York Times, Forbes, TechCrunch, VentureBeat, Web Summit, TEDx Philly, Business of Software, and many more. And guest lectures regularly at Princeton University and the Wharton School. So again, just thrilled to have you with us here today, Bob. Thank you for taking the time. That's amazing. I uh, whoever wrote that bio is is getting a bonus. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully, um, uh, uh, hopefully we can dig into the most interesting, uh, juicy bits of uh, of that journey. And uh, yeah, really proud to be here. And uh, uh, we've known each other for for a while at, at this point. So it's great to kind of you know get a little a little of this history uh, uh, on the record. Excited. Absolutely. To dig in. Yep. And in fact, you know, I, I was introduced to you by another Philadelphian and this was when Crossbeam was really in its early stages. So, uh, you know, I, I got to dive right in and start playing with the platform early on. So uh, I am excited to talk about this, what I'm going to call vast shift in our industry, our economy and our world ecosystem led growth. And as you mentioned in this, the soon to be released book of the same name, the raw ingredients are the ones we're already familiar with partnerships, data, salespeople and workflows. But what's new is the technology that pulls it all together. And the linchpin is this market moment that makes it all so clear. So with Crossbeam, you are an innovator in this movement, yet it wasn't always clear for you. Can you share some of your story on how you got to this moment now? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's kind of uh, surprising to some folks when you look at Crossbeam and then the work that we do uh, with sales teams and partnership teams and in the go-to-market motion. A lot of people assume that my background would be that I... Uh, was a sales leader or that I led a partnership team uh, or that I kind of worked in the, the ecosystem realm. And the reality is that um, while I, I managed folks that did those things, I, I really, that was not where I went deep. I am a huge data nerd, like dating back to my college major and my college thesis and, and everything else. Um, I you know, I'm a, I'm a spreadsheet jockey who knows how to write SQL queries and understands how like deep kind of modern data architecture works. And, you know, from the time uh, I graduated college onward, you know, it's kind of a, a 15 plus year period where I worked almost exclusively in uh, data analytics applications and infrastructure. Uh, you mentioned the two companies, RJ Metrics and Stitch Data. You know, RJ Metrics, you can kind of think of it as like charts and dashboards for e-commerce companies, you know, helping e-commerce companies know who their most valuable customers are, how to get more customers like them, the health of their business uh, through more advanced analytics than just how much did I sell yesterday. And then Stitch Data was even nerdier than that. Stitch went down into the infrastructure and was... Uh, kind of a, a key early player in the modern data stack revolution where we helped businesses build data pipelines that pulled data out of all of their SaaS tools and deposited it into modern cloud data warehouses like Amazon Redshift and Snowflake and uh, Google BigQuery and others. So um, I spent a lot of time kind of a building an appreciation for and then exposure to 
what was going on in the increase in the existence of data in general, data capture, but also the portability of data and what the underlying technology that supports building building modern applications and modern value stories, uh, what's actually possible, right? The art of the possible in terms of what you can do with modern systems and modern data. Um, but to your point, uh, I, I was actually a big partnerships skeptic uh, and ecosystem skeptic back in, in my first company at RJ Metrics, where like we were, our mantra at RJ Metrics was data-driven decisions are better decisions. And that was something we lived by. It was something where if you looked at our sales department, our marketing department, our product, our finance, people, operations, every single one of them, the way they reported out on how things were going was that they had you know, KPIs, key performance indicators. They had ways of measuring the health and success of their department. Those things were correlated to the big you know, KPIs of the business. And it was this very elegant kind of like symphony of measurement and automation that existed in how the business ran. And a lot of that was powered by data analytics and data um, and by SaaS tools, right? By, by pieces of technology and software that captured that data and allowed those teams to use it analyze it and know what their next best action was. And that was, it was a beautiful thing. Uh, That's kind right. of architected. Um, and then you look over at the partnerships team, which uh, we knew was important because at RJ, we, we did a lot of pulling of data from other places and pushing data to other places. There were service companies that implemented our software. There were tech companies we, we built product integrations with. Like partnerships was a thing we couldn't exist without. So we had a partnerships team. But when we looked at that team, uh, there was no data to be found. And it was very challenging and, and frustrating in the framework of how all these other departments ran. And, you know, at, at first you might think, oh, who was running that team, right? Like, is, is this a people problem? Have we not brought in the right data-driven person? But like, uh, we had amazing people on that partner team, uh, like real, real, incredibly sharp, forward-thinking, appreciated and knew the space. The problem wasn't the people. The problem was that, uh, the deck is stacked historically against partner teams in terms of their ability to actually measure and quantify their value and use and have technology team, uh, technology in general, software products, et cetera, and data that help them figure out what to do next and how to scale their operations. And there's a really simple reason for it, which is like math is working against them. So think about what are the most important questions that a partnership team might want to ask uh, in order to help a business grow faster. It's probably, hey, I'm working with this partner. They are of some strategic importance to us. And I need to understand how many of the companies in our sales pipeline are already customers of this partner? Uh, how many customers do we have in common and who are they? Um, are my sales reps currently trying to sell to any of the same companies that your sales reps are trying to sell to? And all of these questions uh, they're unique because unlike in sales and marketing, et cetera, who can just look at all of our data and run analysis and understand how it's going, that partnership set of questions requires drawing a Venn diagram between our data and the data silo of some other external company over whom we have no control whatsoever. And mathematically, you just can't draw a Venn diagram unless you have all of the data from both of the data sets. So you get stuck in this kind of like prisoner's dilemma, game theory challenge, like a, like a data standoff with every single one of your partners individually, because the solution to figuring out 
kind of the surface area of your collaboration and how and where you can collaborate historically has been to choose between not sharing any data and needing to have a classic uh, not data-driven partnership where you send out press releases and you you know you collaborate in the ways you can and you hope for the best and you hope that you're optimized and you know sometimes it works out and uh, sometimes it's it is or isn't working out but it's hard to know how good or bad it could have been right if you were running it better um, <clears throat> so kind of a data absent mode or you go under the radar and you start doing this thing called account mapping, uh, which is a historically prevalent practice where you just email spreadsheets of data to your partners that you probably shouldn't be emailing to them. Customer lists, list of sales prospects, list of knowledge that you have about your market that more or less amounts to an export from your CRM system or maybe a hand curated you know, Google sheet that you share or Excel file that you, you send across and you get into some kind of cadence of, of doing this, right? There's There's an old trope of, you know, the best, the best partnership leaders uh, in the world are really good at, you know, meeting their counterparts at a bar, opening their laptop to their Salesforce account, and then needing to go to the bathroom for 15 minutes, right? Uh, right it's right. just like a little right. bit of yes. creating mm-hmm. this, this shadow IT data visibility between companies. So, um, you know, getting back to your, your question of why I was a skeptic around this, looking at that framework, as I just described it, it's not the partnership's weren't intrinsically valuable. I feared what it would mean to not have a partnerships program, to completely remove our APIs and our ability to build integrations, to completely remove our our trainings and certifications for service partners who could help bring our products to market. But um, I also didn't invest in it. Uh, the, the idea of making an incremental investment to hire that next partner or manager or partner account manager to build that next incremental integration, the absence of data right. made it very, very difficult to prioritize and invest. And we ended up kind of in this like stasis mode where the company was, was growing really rapidly and the partnership team was kind of flat, um, and, and growing disproportionately slow to everything else. And, um, I found that to be really frustrating. Uh, and interestingly, um, you know, this was at RJ Metrics, so we were in, we were in the 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 modern data landscape kind of before it was cool, right? Uh, and <laughs> innovating well, there first. Yeah, we were we were one of the we were a a cloud analytics application, basically a SaaS business intelligence tool before SaaS was a phrase. Like when we started, SaaS wasn't what you called it; it was called an ASP, an application service provider. It was kind of the acronym of like a web hosted piece of software. Um, so we were an ASP in the analytics space in the early days. But what we got to witness, we ran that company for eight years. Uh, 08 uh, was when we founded. We got acquired in 2016. Um, in, between 2008 and 2016, everything changed. And we got to watch a market get heavily, heavily disrupted by new technology entering. Um, and there's this old uh, Jim Barksdale quote, the, you know, the only way to make money in business is bundling and unbundling. And and what we witnessed was the great unbundling of the, the analytics world, right? So um, what used to be that you buy a giant monolithic business intelligence application that sat on premise and, you know, you put all your data in and it crunched that data and you also ran your queries there and you also, you know, got the outputs distributed to your teams there. And it was kind of like this, you know, this monstrous centralized technology. Um, by 2016, the emergence of Amazon Redshift and, and Snowflake and BigQuery and these big modern cloud data warehouses that were um, relatively inexpensive and computationally so, so, so powerful, the emergence of those things basically 
cracked open the analytics space and you got all these new micro categories of tools. Um, the warehouses themselves, but also the data pipeline technologies, which later Stitch would become one of those. Um, but also the analytics, like the charts and dashboards stuff, you had solutions like Looker come into the market where they got to pick what they were good at and really, really be excellent at data modeling and visualizations and kind of took the market by storm. And by 2014, 2015, we're coming off of this rocket ship growth and we start waking up and saying, hey, we're losing a lot of deals to uh, to Looker. We're losing a lot of deals. And, and we never considered Looker a competitor because all they do is charts and dashboards. And we do everything. We do charts and dashboards and data storage and the data pipelines and the data modeling stuff. It's all under one hood. We didn't lose to Looker. We lost to a paradigm shift in how people right. do this stuff in general, mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. the key thing underlying the fact that that paradigm shift happened and that the it's called the modern data stack these days, you know, that kind of modern data stack revolution happened. It was an ecosystem effect. And because we were asleep at the wheel with partnerships and ecosystems and not investing really heavily in it, we missed where the puck was going in our space. And honestly, where the puck has been going in the modern business landscape over the last 10 years plus, which is a gravitation toward high degrees of data portability, incredibly high amounts of collaboration between products from an information exchange standpoint, and thus the fabric of a partner ecosystem being more extremely core to the value proposition of a product, and thus by direct connection, extremely core to how those product companies go to market and sell, how they all the way up and down their funnel, um, how they, they leverage their connectivity to other businesses, to source new business, to sell to those businesses and to grow those accounts. And we didn't get to participate in any of that because we were so closed down from an ecosystem standpoint. And um, we did get acquired in a, in, a, in a good, you know, it was worth our time uh, kind of transaction in, in 2016 and really, really proud of the outcome there and the work the team did there. Um, uh, however, fast forward a couple of years after that, Looker, uh, was acquired by Google for $2.6 billion. Oh my gosh. Uh, when I tell you we didn't sell for $2.6 billion, <laughs> we really didn't sell for $2.6 billion, right? A company that started after we did and existed as a standalone company for a shorter amount of time by being more participatory in the ecosystem, uh, ultimately was able to build something of tremendously, tremendously higher value by being part of the fabric of a bigger ecosystem play. And that that is really what kind of pops my head up to there's something happening here that really needs to be paid attention to. And it's not just specific to data and data analytics. It was happening everywhere. Um, and long winded answer to your question about, you know, my initial skepticism about the space. But I think, uh, frankly, I got a really, really rude awakening wake up call by not just being defeated, but being clobbered from a value creation standpoint in a space that I spent a lot of time and, and passion around. Um, and then Stitch ended up being the exact opposite, which was we were all ecosystem. Like the fact that we were kind of like this glue layer, we built these data pipelines to just connect A to B. So if you're not using A and B, Stitch has no value story. There's no reason you'd ever buy it. So we were 100% like partnering with all the A's out there and all the B's out there, right? All the SaaS platforms, all the uh, uh, data warehouses, the cloud data warehouses, they all became our partners. And that was our only go-to-market channel. I mean, we, we grew that thing through... A combination of really clever content marketing growth hacks and partnerships and ecosystem-led growth plays. And in two years, Stitch grew to a revenue scale 
that it took RJ Metrics eight years to get to. Wow. Uh, you know, what I love about that part of the story is the fact that you set aside egos in that whole environment to just follow the solution, to follow the innovation. And, you know, the whole idea was, hey, we've learned from this experience and Stitch is going to make everybody else's product better. We're going to partner. We're going to we're going to do a 180 basically and just say, you know, it's not about winning or losing. It's about following where the trends are going, like what's happening in the industry. I love that. You're so right. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll yes. And that with a, a little factoid about stitch, which was we had a lot of partners that referred us a lot of business and that we referred a lot of business to our number one partner at stitch was looker. The very company that had humbled us so greatly uh, just a few years before. And look, the Stitch team, by the way, yeah, and and the Stitch team was like uh, RJ Metrics light, right? We we kind of, uh, that whole, when we did the Magento transaction, it's a long story, but basically Stitch technically was a spin out of RJ Metrics. And as part of the Magento transaction, when we got acquired, we were able to take some of the staff with with us to go pursue Stitch. Uh, So... Almost every employee of Stitch was someone that came from the original RJ Metric squad, including myself and my and my co-founder. So, like the uh, that uh, that that humbling right was in in the DNA, you know, and 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 the scar tissue of everybody there. But it was so empowering to like embrace the change and lean into it. Right. It felt like we've been running with a lead backpack on for, for the last three or four years running RJ metrics. And suddenly you take it off and it's like, wow, we actually know how to run really fast. I can sprint now. Yeah, I can sprint now. Uh, and by the way, all these, uh, uh, all these, all this wind that was blowing in our face while we were running up that hill is now at our backs while we're, we're running, you know, uh, yeah. And you, you learned, you survived, you didn't just survive disruption. You know, you, you took it and you thrived through the disruption. It became a stepping stone to the next level. And, you know, I want to, I want to talk about disruption today, like what we're seeing now. Um, And with ecosystem led growth, which uh, is, is being demonstrated. I mean, it's a real strategy. Essentially, there are a lot of effects, a lot of other disruptive things that are coming together around that. And one of them, I and mean, we can't really talk about it un- unless we talk about AI, because that is the big disruptor, specifically uh, chat GBT and its effect on both inbound and outbound marketing. So, okay, we know it's disruptive, but I have a few questions here. For example, in your opinion, just how disruptive is it? And what methods and strategies do you see are already casualties? And then lastly, can you share an example of where chat GBT and AI has already multiplied or magnified goodness? Yeah, these are great questions. And I, um, I, I always try to think when talking about AI, how to answer it in a way where I'm not going to sound like an idiot in three months, right? Because the, like the, the rate at which the, like everybody is being humbled, right? By, by right, right. Specifically around. But you know, you're also a risk taker, Bob. So, you know, we could yeah, take There you go. I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to roll, roll with the punches here. Um, yeah. But I'll, you know, um, at, at the time of us sitting down having this conversation, um, you know, there's some really 
if you think fundamentally, and AI comes in in a lot of different flavors, and there's so much disruption in so many different areas uh, that that are not just you know limited to uh, text generation. Um, so much across all forms of media, uh, and so much stacking of these technologies and synthesizing of them into something interesting, exciting is out there. I'll focus in on the stuff around uh, kind of inbound marketing and outbound selling and, and yes. the realm you asked about. Mm -hmm. um, so this is interesting, right? Like I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in inbound in general, right? This is a, a, a strategy pioneered predominantly by HubSpot throughout mm -hmm. kind of the, you know, the late aughts and the, and the 20s. And look at their success. I mean, they uh, broke, they broke that open. They, they really did. And they also used it as an incredible gateway for them to expand out into a lot of other areas like CRM and uh, and the like, right? But at their core, this idea behind the inbound marketing is, you know, rather than hiring an army of outbound sales reps or spending a lot of money on ad dollars, you can leverage the way that people discover information in the modern economy to draw people inbound to your company and your assets. So it is a combination of strategies that involve um, content marketing and you know generating really compelling, interesting content that will uh, actually be appealing to the exact audience that you want to reach, uh, which can come in many, many forms and flavors. Uh, content is not just blog posts and tweets. Uh, you know, interactive websites that provide some value, community building, uh, and kind of the cultivation of. Uh, some kind of community culture around your product or the practitioners uh, around your product, right? All this falls under inbound. Um, but then you couple that with amplification strategies, things like search engine optimization uh, that make it even easier for the discovery patterns to happen. And then once you've pulled in someone, all of these strategies around retaining them and keeping them in your audience. So uh, newsletters, email, uh, Email marketing, like traditional email marketing, and also kind of content-centric email marketing, like you know, our Crossbeam newsletter uh, has seventy thousand or so people on it at this point. Um, it's not because that many people like really, really care about the next incremental product improvement we ship. It's because we're talking about things that matter to their careers predominantly through that channel, and that's like a classic inbound strategy list generation. Then you build a megaphone, and then you create these very virtue, uh, virtuistic. Uh, uh, cycles uh, where you then have the audience. That's how you promote the new content, and then that uh, you know leads to more attention, and that uh, leads to more inbound links, and that moves up your search engine rankings. And then you build more audience. It's beautiful. Um, it's a strategy that you've got to really want to go after from day zero because you can create a whole lot of content and throw it out there into the world. And when you're number 162 for your keyword term in the Google search results, you're going to basically see no returns from it. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been the game, that, right? That's yeah, been the big game. Um, having a, and a lot of these things, and this is like maybe, you know, SEO best practices from five years ago, and I'll, I'll get to AI in a second and how it disrupts all this. But like, you know, Google cares about things like how long has your domain name existed, right? Like the, the domain authority concept around, um, is this something that someone stand up to be a content farm uh, or is this something where there's a longstanding, uh, you know, basically uh, e almost ecosystem effect around the information and the consumption of that information within this property? So it does build uh, and it, it can build exponentially if you're able to get yourself rooted and pointed at, you know, the right places in, in, in the right times in terms of discovery. So all that's awesome. I, I, 
such a big believer in that. I mentioned earlier at Stitch Data, like the only two strategies go to market wise that we really ran there were the ecosystem kind of, you know, ELG ecosystem like growth strategies and driving growth through our partner teams and inbound. Uh, and we did a ton of stuff on microsites and, uh, you know, search engine optimization and things like that for lead gen. So big believer in it. Love it. AI is going to throw the biggest curveball in this thing that it's ever seen. Um, the And I'll, I'll, I'll just give you two examples, two dimensions. Okay. Um, that actually compound to, to make it really interesting, which is um, uh, the, I'll tell you a story about a, a, a content, an inbound marketing uh, project that we did at Stitch that was very successful and how I think with some of this generative AI, it would never work today. Um, so at Stitch, we, um, we moved data from a bunch of SaaS tools to a finite number of data warehouses, Redshift, Snowflake, BigQuery, Azure, SQL Data, Cloud, um, uh, a couple of others, S3. Um, so we bought a bunch of domain names uh, that were two, the letter, the word two, T-O, and then the name of the cloud warehouse. So we owned two redshifts.com, two snowflake.com, two bigquery.com, two s3.com. And uh, I built in a hackathon this very simple, um, I think I built this in Drupal, um, this very simple application that allowed us to then create a big database of content that had information about all of the SaaS tools that existed that we pulled data from, of which there were about 70 in total. So this would be you know, you're pulling data out of MailChimp, out of Shopify, out of uh, out of Stripe, um, uh, out, basically any tool, right? That's Salesforce, obviously HubSpot, et cetera. Anything that knows something about your business, these data sites. Yeah, okay. The, the way this Drupal thing worked was uh, I populated a database with, for every one of those SaaS tools, here's uh, some information about their API and a link to their API docs. Here's what you have to do to, you know, write code that would pull data out of that API. And then for all the cloud data warehouses, I had a database of content that was like, once you have a bunch of data, here's how to stand up that cloud data warehouse, and here's how to insert data that you have into it. And then what this application did was it created dynamically a unique website for every possible permutation of the source and the destination. So if you went to like mailchimp.toredshift.com, what you got was what looked like a very awesome custom-built website that said, are you trying to get your MailChimp data into Redshift? Here's what you need to know. Here's how to get your data out of Mail. Here's what MailChimp is. Here's how to get your data out of MailChimp. Here's what Redshift is. Here's how to put data into Redshift. Holy crap, doesn't that sound like a pain in the butt? Why don't you just sign up for Stitch and click a couple buttons and we'll do it for you. And it was this very bespoke kind of long tail search engine optimized landing page where, you know, it's 70 sources and call it 10 destinations. Well, by writing 80 pieces of, of micro content, right? 70 plus 10, yep. we ended up with 700, 70 times 10 microsites because of everything. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of us are familiar with that. We, we did that at, um, I, I ran a TSB for 14 years and we did a similar thing. Oh, and, awesome. you know, yeah, it, it was, a, it was a, an effective strategy. So we, we, what we found was, right, like we were never going to win. People searching for like, uh, you know, 
very broad terms like data warehouse or something, you know, you'd, pay, you'd spend $100 a click on Google, right, to get an ad there. The competition for the top of the SEO was impossible. It would take us years to work our way up. But nobody had a web, like for the, for the person that is just a practitioner trying to get their data out of MailChimp into Redshift, they're probably Googling like MailChimp to Redshift. And our thesis was, we think we could be the number one result for any one of these searches that involves like this, this transformation of data, this extraction. Okay. Okay. So tie this to me, like to today. Yeah. So, uh, that strategy worked gangbusters. We very rapidly became the number one organic search result for these things. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a good enough piece of content that it got credibility from the search engines and drove a ton of people in. Now, fast forward to today. Imagine if I wanted to roll out that inbound marketing strategy. There are two things that are going to fundamentally screw me up. One is the reason it was so innovative is because I only had to write, because this content requires a lot of research. It requires a lot of specificity. Um, Google does not like duplicate content. So the mixing and matching was really critical. So no two pages were more than 50% alike. Huge amounts of human labor in order to stand this thing up. And it was a creative growth hack to permute the combination of things to create effectively 700 websites by only writing 80. Uh, in today's like chat GPT world, I can go into G I don't even need GPT four for this. I can go to three and a half and I can say, can you please give me detailed step-by-step -step instructions, roughly a thousand words in length about how to extract data from MailChimp's API and insert it into Amazon Redshift. And instantaneously that article will get generated and it will be better, better than what we had at MailChimp.2Redshift.com. From a quality of the writing, from a uniqueness from Google's standpoint, and literally, probably most importantly, it's probably more helpful to the end because it actually is coherently connecting the steps. In our thing, we just kind of mash together, here's how to get it out, here's how to put it in. The ChatGPT instructions can actually give you these like transition steps, right, around uh, you know, how to get that information out, et cetera, all the right, like it's amazing at the content generation, right? So that's part one. Generating who cares about generating 80 and getting 700? Just generate 700 because you can do it in, in instantaneously. Really. You, can, you can write a script that hits the ChatGPT API and generates good stuff. Um, so that whole like growth hack doesn't even matter anymore. Uh, and the technology differentiation doesn't matter. You can saturate the market with actually better quality content. So that's one. Here's part two. That thing only worked because there was some universe of people that were searching for MailChimp to Redshift out there because the best place for them to find the answer to that question was Google. That also is not true anymore. Right. And even if you did generate the 700 websites and you did have better content and you did move to the number one result for when you search for MailChimp to Google, the people who are doing that search increasingly are now aware that the answer to their question is not the kind of question that you go to Google to answer anymore. You just go to the generative AI interface and you ask it that question. So the whole concept of search engine optimization gets undermined because search traffic for these long tail yet high quality kind of persona targeted search terms ultimately is going to suffer really, really greatly. Um, and, and the entire strategy in and of itself gets undermined. So it's a one-two punch. Any one of those two things, killing the search volume or making it possible for anybody in the world to flood the web with high-quality content that's very, 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 very bespoke and specific to a question, either one of those things would completely undermine that inbound strategy that we had, and both of them 
are happening uh, at, at the same exact time. And in fact, they're kind of exacerbating each other. So you can just expand that, right? Like pick your inbound strategy uh, and expand that. It doesn't mean that inbound doesn't work anymore. In some ways, audience building, list cultivation, community cultivation, having a direct channel and means of like reaching out to and activating and reactivating audiences will actually become more differentiating and important than ever as a lot of these strategies, you know, kind of dry up in the face of AI. But it means that the playbooks are just being rewritten from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. because it takes sometimes two, three years historically for you to really stand up and see an inbound strategy flourish and your audience grow and you turn it into a real machinery that you can scale a business on, well, two, three years is an infinite amount of time in this landscape of how rapidly AI Mm -hmm. is changing things and these playbooks are being rewritten. So that, Mm -hmm. that, I think that's really at the core of it. Yep, yep. So we're seeing this force multiplier, so to speak, that is just yeah, well, it's, here. To, it's a here force today. multiplier and a force divider. Yeah, it's it's like uh, the you know it, it's going to make uh, it's going to make the things that it accelerates. It, it will unlock playbooks that may have seemed completely impractical or unreachable before, and it will destroy the importance or validity of playbooks that seem like the smartest plays in the world as little as a small number of years ago. <laughs> Well, speaking of playbooks, let's come back to partners again and partnering um, because we're definitely through ecosystem-led growth, we need new playbooks. Um, One of the things that I learned at your great Supernode conference a while back, beginning of June, thank you for that. It was an excellent conference. I love the theme, Better Together. And Um, one of the things I I heard about was this survey that you all have done, this partner survey. And it's an annual survey. And going back all the way to 2020, what was interesting to me was just one result has remained consistent, which is partner professionals being convinced that they're generating profitable growth and revenue. And yet, partner programs continuing to be underfunded by their CEOs. And You've even coined a name for it, I believe, the partner paradox. That's right. What do you attribute attribute this paradox to and how can we solve it? Yeah, this is great. It's a great question. And I I think it actually comes full circle to what what we were talking about way back in in my RJ Metrics story, where I was kind of systematically undervaluing partnerships because of a lack of, of measurability and scalability of those programs. I think that's really at the heart of it, right? Like the um, partner teams, they see it, they live in it, they understand that they themselves are this really interesting force multiplier in a business. But from a historical standpoint, they lack um, the ability to generate compelling, consistently uh, attributable uh, mm-hmm. metrics that point back mm-hmm. to, to what that impact actually is because it yeah, is so... Yeah, the CEO needs that attribution in order to believe, quote unquote. Yeah, and I think even, you know, t- you know, taking it even a step further, there's almost like a cultural thing that exists where I've heard stories of partner teams that have worked really, really hard to build out, manually build out large-scale attribution programs with manual tagging inside of their CRM systems and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, it's a a very big, laborious process that that can take a long time. And they finally have data and they take that data to their CFO. And the CFO says something to the effect of, I see it, I just don't believe it. Uh, And that there is this, this weight 
that is that exists on the shoulders of partner practitioners that kind of is the um they're the victims of the reputation of a space where there hasn't been a tremendous amount of innovation uh from a technology or data standpoint for such a long time right that you do well, have a lot I, of can i just interrupt too because i know when you spoke earlier about the prisoner paradox and how these things were kind of done in a clandestine manner with my background in sales i'm well familiar with with all those methods because that's how we had to operate and yeah. the most successful salespeople we know have been that way even in uh what was traditionally a direct world by partnering. It just wasn't something that their sales manager knew they were doing, but it was happening (laughs) behind the scenes. So how do we bring Uh, that into the open? Yeah. So this is, um, this is where uh, the modern advances that have happened in data technology are here to save the day. And Going back to that Venn diagram kind of prisoner's dilemma that we talked about before, what was really missing there was the ability for companies, like if you could wave a magic wand, what would you want? You'd want almost something that functions like an escrow service for data, right? Like a a secure, independent, third-party platform that can sit in between companies who are partnering with each other and allow both sides to connect their systems of record, which might be their CRM system, their marketing automation system, their uh, data warehouse, et cetera, and allow them to basically compare their data to the data of their partners and figure out the very, very specific, narrow segments of data that intersect and are actionable and are relevant to the context of that partnership and allow them to collaborate on that data, control what gets shared to the other side when and under what circumstances and ultimately track and measure the evolution of that overlapping data across both of the customer sets of of the companies independently like really take care of all the all the hard stuff and allow for that clandestine account mapping practice to to kind of come into the daylight and actually live in a world where security teams sign off on it and privacy teams are okay with it and compliance teams give it the okay because ultimately each party retains ownership of their data and retains absolute control over what data is getting shared and and exposed and in what circumstances. And that that dream uh, is basically the, the mission that we set out with at Crossbeam. Like we we set out to build that escrow service that effectively sits in between those companies, but to do it at a scale where you could actually have it running for your entire partner ecosystem, even when that might involve hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of partners. And to ultimately, what, what we're trying to do is unlock a data layer that has never existed before, that is effectively the middle of all the theoretical Venn diagrams that could exist between you and a company that you're either partnered with or you might partner with, and then give you and your go-to-market teams a new kind of CRM view that has been unreachable before, which is not just what exists in your siloed CRM, but also gives you a lens into the CRM of every single company that you are partnered with and, and allows you to look at any given record whether it's a customer or a prospect or an opportunity or anything in between with the full context of not just what you know, but also what everyone in your partner ecosystem knows that they're willing to share with you. Uh, And that is a very, very profoundly powerful Mm -hmm. 
new new source of information and knowledge and context that you can build entire revolutionary playbooks on top of. And when we talk yeah. about ecosystem-led growth, that's what we're talking about. It's the yeah. set of playbooks that can be built on top of this modern ecosystem-led data fabric that we now have at our fingertips. Oh, this uh, is and- this is breakthrough. And, you know, you mentioned scale. I mean, that's such a huge aspect of it as well. You know, having the capability to take this incredible breakthrough technology, this escrow, if you will, environment that allows for compliance and security and trust while accelerating that sales process and setting those prisoners free. I mean, it it really is exciting. And, you know, when we were at Supernode, once again, I'm going to just mention that you you shared with us a lot of really good statistics. And one of them was the trends towards ecosystem-wide growth as a business strategy, as a, as a growth strategy. And yet, just 8% of the total addressable market has adopted it as of today. So, in light of what you just shared with us, what do you see trending as we get into the second half of 2023 and look ahead to 2024 and beyond? Yeah, ironically, I'm actually really proud of that 8% uh, because I think it's like, this is the point that I made at, at, at Supernode, I think is we as Crossbeam, kind of as the unlocker of this data layer, um, we can certainly you know, be uh, be proud of the fact that now, you know, we've got 15,000 companies that are on on Crossbeam in the data network kind of participating. Oh, congratulations. Like all of that's great. Um, but the broader point that, that I made was like, I think if we didn't exist, something else would. Um, th- this is not because we did something that created a movement. This is because there's a movement happening. And we happen to build the right tool at the right place at the right time to help enable and accelerate it. Like there's that is a great feeling to step into a yes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think so. Right? It's a uh, uh, because and it also requires getting back to like kind of you know the past businesses experiences and, yes. and you know the the necessity to kind of humble yourself. Like I like I don't think that we, despite the fact that we're kind of a, a critical pathway for people. Um, you know, executing on the, these playbooks. Um, I don't think that the playbooks exist because we exist. I think we exist because the playbooks are really, you know, coming into fruition. And there's so many underlying trends around both the maturity of the modern API economy and uh, a lot of the stuff I mentioned about these great unbundling cycles that, that have happened um, across technology businesses um, and the like over the last decade that just like, Make this matter a lot and make it work a lot better now uh, than than it ever has in the past. Um, and also simultaneously, the massive market correction that is creating a high demand for profitable growth as opposed to growth at all at all costs, and the, even the impacts of AI kind of changing the efficacy of all these different channels. It's just there's this moment right now where there are all these externalities in in the market. Uh, and all these internalities that exist within any given company within their ecosystem and, and how strong and rapidly growing it is that just it creates this very powerful zeitgeist among people that are building companies today that puts a lot of attention on this space. Right. So uh, nobody was doing this three, four years ago, like nobody. Um, and uh, or if they were, it was through those kind of back channel spreadsheets being emailed around. Right. No one was doing it in this way three, four years ago. And what what we are at right now is this really amazing, exciting kind of crossing the chasm moment for these strategies where 
you have the first six to eight percent of companies that have decided to adopt these things that are just crushing it and putting up able to put up measurable numbers that show that these ELG strategies lead to uh, the most efficient pipeline and, and demand generation that they've ever seen as a company. And that pipeline closes faster at higher deal values and grows you know, more rapidly over time than any other source that, that they're bringing in, right? And all the way up and down the funnel, this stuff is working well. And those early adopters are kind of tapping into the arbitrage of being the first there. But what we're starting to see is this real demand from the rest of the market, right? From, from the later adopters that come into play. And that's where it starts to get really big and really exciting. Yes. Yeah. I'm all for it. Um, you know, that is a, a shared objective. I'm part of this ecosystem environment and evangelizing ecosystem-led growth is a daily activity at Ridge Innovative. And I love to see these companies, these early adopters, giving us the case studies, showing us you know, that it just starts with, with one opportunity, you know, just, just go there and, and dig in, take that risk, start it, you know, begin building those programs, look at uh, tools like Crossbeam, bring that into the mix. And the results are going to speak for themselves. You know, a year from now, we're going to have tremendous additional case studies that we can bring to the table. I can't wait to see what's next. Uh, feelings really mutual, and I liked at the beginning of our chat. I think you you phrased it really well. Where the ingredients here are not new, right? Like this is not something like an inbound marketing where we have to say, okay, you're going to make major investments right now that are going to pay dividends over a multi year period that are kind of core to the way you build your business. Most businesses, whether they they know it or have labeled it as such already, they have. An ecosystem already, uh, you know, a universe of partners that may come in many different shapes and sizes, but folks with whom you have some alignment such that when one of you wins, the other one can win as well. You win together. And if you have that, then you can start building your data network around that and start deploying some of these in days rather than than years and start to really see the upside. And that's you know part of what's so exciting about this whole thing. Yeah, and we know, I mean, the stats keep bearing it out. I mean, you know, there's study after study that tells us, look, if you're partnering just in a couple of the metrics, your deal sizes are going to be 181% greater. <laughs> you know, the close ratios are like 48% faster. I mean, these are hard numbers to argue with and who wants to? Let's just, you know, take, set down that lead backpack that you mentioned (laughs) and, you know, get in the flow and let those tailwinds kind of push us along. And I'm thrilled to, you know, to be a part of this ecosystem with you, Bob. And, and by the way, I do want to give a plug. We've mentioned Supernote a couple of times today. You have your virtual user conference coming up the connector summit in October. So uh, I know folks can reach out to either one of us, really, if they want to know more about that. Yeah, and you can just Google uh, or, or head to our website um, uh, to learn more. The Connector Summit's free. It's a virtual event, but it's uh, it, there's a lot there for the power users, but there's also tracks for people that are like completely new, just getting started, want to understand ecosystem-led growth, understand the cross-beam technology. Uh, it's a great, you know, kind of low overhead way to get more exposure here. So yes, uh, and get yeah. connected with this incredible community. So, Indeed. all right. I always like to close by having a little fun, although this has been fun all along. Um, my last question for you is 
what innovation would you most like to see gain adoption? And it could be anything, anything at all. Oh, Whimsical, wow. um, practical, whatever. Hmm. Um, look, I'll give you, I, I don't know if you'd call it an innovation, uh, but getting back to, uh, you know, you mentioned my, my improv experience uh, yeah. early on in this call, right? I would, I would love if more people in the business universe kind of uh, took an improv class. Uh, like I think, uh, you know, we spend, we spend a lot of time uh, with a, a lot of humans um, and, you know, have a lot of interactions in the course of a day. And I personally think my job on the, on the margin or on the whole is pretty fun. Uh, I have a lot of fun doing it. I have a ton of fun having conversations like these. I like, uh, you know, interacting with people um, but like I said, I'm a data nerd by trade. I'm like an introvert historically, right? I, I spent my college years in a basement writing software code. And I think the thing that bridged the gap for me as I became less the engineer and more the CEO was the years I spent doing doing improv comedy. Um, and look, don't get me wrong. Like we, we bombed a lot of the time and uh, a lot more stuff was not funny than funny. But I think being able to treat every conversation um, by by listening, like the listening skills that come with, with doing improv uh, over a long time period are just tremendous. And I think they really, really changed like who I am as a person and as a friend and, um, uh, you know, made me more acutely aware of like tuning into what people are really saying and also just forcing the elephant in the room or the hardest part of the conversation to the surface because in improv, that's what you have to do, right? If you don't call it out, the audience and the audience noticed it, then, then you've lost them. And a lot of those tenants like live at the core of how I approach my day, how I approach every meeting and interaction. And I think it just cuts through so much without making it awkward, uh, instead with actually making it fun. And, and, uh, yeah, I, it's maybe the best business training I've ever gotten, right? It's uh, five years of, uh, of doing improv. I love it. So listen better, laugh more and mm -hmm. grow that self-awareness. Yeah, well put. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Bob. Really appreciated it. And cool. Thank you, Nancy. It's been, a, it's been fun. It, it has. We'll have, to, we'll have to do round two after the book comes out. <laughs> Please. I'd love that. Yeah. And, and to my listeners, don't forget to subscribe at iTunes to get updates on new episodes as well. And you'll find us at www.soundcloud.com, Culture of Innovation. And be sure to check us out at www.ridgeinnovative.com. Have a breakthrough day. We'll see you next time.